Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat made its debut in London in 1968. Now, I was 12 years old, and a student over at Metter Junior High School. Um, but I remember when that music became available. I remember how that early collaborative effort of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice began to mark my world. I remember those playful and yet very profound songs. What a way to learn scripture. I mean, my vacation Bible school repertoire was Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. And I learned a little scripture from that. And who hasn't learned Scripture from Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. But Jacob and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat took it to an entirely new level. The lyrics of Dreamcoat stuck like glue with me. I was able to remember the Scripture even without trying. Did any of you have this same experience with listening to that musical? Now, the New Revised Standard Version is my chosen mode of reading. And I choose it because really it was chosen for me. When I was in seminary, it was extended to the students who were there as being one of the most accurate translations of Holy Scripture, the ancient original documents that were written in Hebrew and in Greek. And so I have used it across these many years. But I have a gripe with it in this case. Did you pick up on the translation just a few moments ago as Regina was reading and she said that Joseph's father, Jacob, had given to him a long robe with sleeves. Now, I want to beg the forgiveness of my professors on this. But my heart leans toward the King James Version on this matter. Because it set the precedent, obviously that this was not just any coat, but this was a coat of many colors, which, of course, would become the star of the show in terms of the ancient story of Joseph, but in particular, in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, this was exaggerated beyond belief. In every episode that has ever occurred, whether it was on Broadway, off-Broadway, whether it was on a college campus or in a high school auditorium, because it has been performed everywhere by everybody, there is this exaggeration of what that coat must have been. Uh, Sue and I saw an off-Broadway production when we were in Macon, and the coat 
was fascinating. It was, of course, as brilliantly colored as this one here before us. And yet on the inside of it, it was done even one better because at the end of the show, the finale, when Joseph comes out to sing that grand number, he opens the coat and it is covered on the inside with sequins. And so when he is hit by a spotlight, the room actually comes ablaze with the brilliance of these little starlights that are twinkling all around us. What a powerful thing that image is. In the Genesis story, Jacob plays favorites with this, at that time, his youngest son, Joseph. I had an acquaintance of years past who said to me that his family put the fun in dysfunctional. <laughs> I talked with him about that and he told me this dire story of how everything had broken loose from its moorings in his family and tragic events had been unleashed. He was trying to make the most of it with his light humor. But there is no denying that Jacob just cannot seem to help himself. Even on this side of his dreams, you remember the dream of that ladder that connected earth with heaven, and then the dream that we considered last week of his wrestling with the very nature of who God was and who he was as well. Jacob cannot seem to help himself. This one who grabs at the heel, this one who perfected his trickster attitude to a fine art, even with the help of his mother, who saw the world from this perspective, you would think that he would have learned the lesson of how dangerous it was to play favorites. And yet, here he is, smiling lovingly at Joseph and gifting him with this beautiful coat. The Joseph story is one of the most fascinating narratives in all of the book of Genesis. In fact, it is the longest story in the book of Genesis, if you have not already picked up on this, two times as long as the story of Abraham. Does that mean that it's more important than the story of Abraham? No, but it does mean that we should look carefully at why it would have been given so much real estate in that story of beginnings in the Bible. Joseph, this favorite son, likes the attention and don't we all? We like the attention when we can get it. 
It, however, drives a wedge between Joseph and his brothers. Especially, especially when Joseph becomes this snitch that reports God knows what his brothers were doing out there in the field. But when Joseph brings his report to his loving father, Jacob. This is more than sibling rivalry. And his brothers hated him. They literally hated him. The Bible makes this clear, saying it in no uncertain terms. They hated him. Joseph did himself no favor to share with them his dreams. You remember that his first dream there we were binding sheaves in the field, doing the work on the land. My sheave rose up, and your sheaves bowed down to my sheave. What an image this is to think about Joseph not understanding the implications of how this might be received by his brothers. Oh, you and I are so insensitive, if not completely naive, to how others would receive the things that we're saying. Don't you have to bite your tongue these days in order that you not say something back too quickly to somebody who hasn't taken consideration for the fact that you may be thinking something quite different than what they're thinking. Dreams, as we all know, can be very puzzling. Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung spent much time through psychoanalysis probing the implications of our dreams. While they made many insightful writings on this subject. It's interesting that they never dealt with the prophetic nature of dreams. But Joseph's brothers were not stupid. Joseph's brothers knew what was going on in these dreams, and it was pretty obvious what had bubbled up from the subconscious of this egotistical brat of a brother. Oh, how they hated him. They couldn't get it out of their minds how they hated him. When he comes to them with a second dream, the sun, the moon, and no less the stars, Joseph said, were bowing down to him.
This even offended Jacob. And I have no doubt may have offended Rachel, Joseph's mother. Did Jacob do anything about it? No. This was his favorite son. What could he do? He loved his favorite son. But I tell you, this little passage that says Jacob kept the divine and prophetic in mind is almost like the word from the New Testament where Mary receives word from God and the shepherds come and visit her and it says that she pondered these things in her heart. Jacob was thinking on what had been told. As the story unfolds, the brothers are tending sheep once again, way out in the wilderness. Was it the sheep that were following them or were they following the sheep? They were far away and Joseph was sent by his father to find them. And finally, when he does begin to come near to where they are, they see him, the brothers do, from a distance. They see Joseph approaching, and they plan, or should I perhaps say, they plot to welcome him in to their midst. Were it not for Reuben, the brother that does seem to have a lick of sense, they would have killed him outright. They had already concocted a story of how they would represent this matter to their loving father. But at the opportunity and under the suggestion, their greediness got the better of them. And they saw the opportunity to sell Joseph off to a band of Ishmaelites. And I would not have known who they were had it not been for that musical dream coat. <laughs> but Joseph was sold to the Ishmaelites. And they carried a blood-stained coat of many colors home to their father his heart was broken as you can imagine not for the moment but for years it affected him as Joseph was on his journey with the Ishmaelites the opportunity for the Ishmaelites to pass him off for a few extra shekels themselves came into view as Potiphar, this officer, chief of the guard, of Pharaoh's guard, 
bought him from these traitors. And when Potiphar realized how valuable of a purchase he had made, he began to elevate Joseph to more and more responsibility. He found that Joseph was a very responsible manager. Something that he didn't realize that he had bargained in this deal. He got a gold mine of a deal in Joseph. It says in the scripture that Joseph found favor as the overseer of his house. But Potiphar had a wife and she looked on Joseph with interest herself. In fact, this handsome young man that had come to their household caught her eye to the point that she was no longer faithful in her spirit to Potiphar. But she set out to woo Joseph into relationship. And then when she found that she was unable to do that. She accused him of having attacked her. Who was Potiphar to believe? But his wife, to whom he was most faithful, even when compared with this very able slave in his household. Of course, Joseph was thrown into jail. And yet, Joseph rose through the ranks of jail and becomes this friend of the chief jailer who gives him responsibility over the others that are in prison. It says in the scripture that Joseph found favor with the jailer. And he received, because of his managerial skills, responsibilities and trust. Who knows what was going on in Pharaoh's household. But one day, as Joseph was there in prison, he saw two new prisoners arrive. One, the cupbearer of Pharaoh and the baker of Pharaoh. Each of them had been accused for some reason. Can you imagine what it was like to sleep in this dungeon of a place. And how not only because it was a very uncomfortable place to seek sleep, but because of the nature of the accusations that had been made and possibly the guilt that was a part of their lives. They tossed and turned at night. And having dreamed some fanciful dreams shared with Joseph and he was able to interpret for them 
what those dreams meant. Not only was he able to interpret the dreams, but it came to pass the way in which he interpreted the dreams as these two found their way outside of the prison walls. Two years passed, and you know the story as to who was dreaming next. Pharaoh was troubled in his spirit. He could not put his finger on it, but everything that spoke to him in his dream at night troubled his spirit. He told those that were closest to him that he had seen this vision of cows. Seven cows that were very wonderful in their physique. They were ready for the market. But there were seven other cows that were so emaciated. And those seven emaciated cows came up and ate the good cows. What could this mean? Another dream that troubled Pharaoh was that he saw grain in the field. Was it ears of corn on a stalk? What was it? But the stalk was so healthy. And yet there was other grain that looked like it had had to deal with the scorching heat of the desert that began to gobble away and eat up that which was good. Pharaoh's cup holder, when he was with the Pharaoh, told him, I remember a fellow who spoke to me and interpreted my dream. And Pharaoh said, send for him, this interpreter of dreams. And when Joseph came to Pharaoh, well, you know the story of how Joseph said seven years of great crops and plenty and yet this will be followed by seven years of global famine in which you will reap nothing and in Pharaoh's trust Joseph found favor with Pharaoh and not only saw in Pharaoh in Joseph that interpretation of dreams, but saw within Joseph a manager of great expertise to whom he gave the whole of the kingdom and put him in charge of preparations for those seven years that were to come that would be so bleak. Sue and I have been reading through a devotional guide that Sue's father, Alec Bullington, purchased when he was a student at Yale Divinity School. 
And it's a fascinating book. It was old, I think, even then. What's most precious in it are some of the little comments that Ellick has made on the page and in the margins and what he has underlined. But we've been fascinated particularly by the writings of those who are treasured in the pages of that little book. And they reach back into the history of the church to some names that would be very well known. But then they reach into some places of obscurity to claim the writings of years past, but not writings that would have ever received the attention of everyone in the church. We read this past week, near the first of the week, a writing by John Kerr, who was a 19th century Scottish minister, who wrote this. We often catch a catch a truth we often catch a truth by a side glance when we have failed to see it by a full direct gaze as we perceive a star with the side of our eye sooner than with the center now this was interesting to us particularly because just the night before we had stepped out into our yard in order to see if we could find the comet Neowise. Did anybody else here do that? Raise your hand if you saw it. It was very difficult. I see Roger back there raising his hand. It was very difficult to find. Um, but finally... Finally, after looking on the internet to see where it exactly was supposed to be, and with binoculars in hand, we were able to spot it. It was right there. It was right there. But when you would put the binoculars down, it almost was as if it disappeared. We would strain, looking, looking with the naked eye in order to see it. And could not see it. The next night I went out thinking, I'm going to see it this time. It was even harder to see. But every time my eyes flickered to either the left or the right, it was amazing. It came into view. We investigated this, especially I did after having read this quote by John Kerr, who evidently had experienced something very similar when he was looking at the night sky. And I learned something that I had never known, that in the retina, there are two receptors that we have, those that are called the cones that receive color. And they do so when there is enough light to permit color to come in. But they are surrounded by what are called rods, 
which receive no color at all, but are very effective in low light situations. So that in the case of a comet, which you cannot see looking directly at it, if you look to the side, not directly at it, but as a sideways glance, you can see the comet and the tail just as it is supposed to be. It's an odd phenomena, in my opinion, but one that bears some interest in relationship to this story. Because when I look sideways at the comet called Joseph, I see the dust and vapor of Jesus. The one whom we most understand to have been accused far more than Joseph and abused far more than Joseph. I see the dust and vapor of that tragic story of Jesus whose life was snuffed out but redeemed in a way that only God could do. You already know that the world hates prophets and dreamers. In fact, you remember what happened to John the baptizer, don't you? And do you remember what happened to the disciple James? One of the very first ones that Jesus called as a disciple was also one of the first to fall by way of stoning. Do you remember what happened to that very faithful individual named Stephen who also was one of the first to be killed? And do you remember who was standing near Stephen holding the coats of those who cast the stones? It was Saul. And you remember that Saul, who thought he saw things so clearly, so clearly, that as he stared into the very face, it seemed, of God to be able to say what was right and what was wrong, that his perspective changed completely when on that road to Damascus, he caught only with a sideways glance the very nature of who God was in Jesus Christ to the point that he had to ask the question, Who are you, Lord? The one who you are persecuting. And there he was beginning to rely on things within him that he never knew were there. You and I become so attached to the idea 
that God would not want us to change. God would not expect that of us. We're looking into the eyes of God. How could God ever ask us to stare anywhere else but into his eyes? But I want to hear tell you that I believe that God can reveal something to us perhaps more profound when we're giving him a sideways glance. You hear what I'm saying? Do you remember Peter? Do you remember Peter's vision where he had it all figured out? He knew who was in and who was out. And yet in the middle of the day, there he was falling into a vision as this sheet that let down before him filled with animals of all sorts and birds. And God's holy word through Jesus speaking to him, wondering in his spirit, is there anything that God has made that we should call sinful? I tell you that in that very moment, Peter saw the world in quite a different way and saw Jesus perhaps more clearly than he had ever seen Jesus. Have you met the ultimate dreamer? And you know who this is. Not Joseph. It is Jesus. Have you met the ultimate dreamer? Do you catch glimpses of him? Moving through the world. Through your life through the lives of others. I believe that the only one who can truly reveal to us the meaning of our dreams is the ultimate dreamer. But you have to be on the lookout because you'll never catch him at a place where you can see him eye to eye, eye to eye, eye to eye. Only from a sideways glance can you understand what he's up to. God help us.